This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, we'll take a look at the state of racism in Hollywood and find out if Atlanta really is the mecca for Black filmmakers. And... When liberals call Donald Trump un-American, aren't they playing the same chauvinist game as he is? But first, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations held its national conference in St. Louis this month. The coalition was formed 10 years ago during Barack Obama's first year in the White House. Black Agenda Report Executive Editor Glenn Ford is a co-founder of Black is Back. I'm going to speak directly to the theme that was chosen for this conference, turn imperialist wars into wars against imperialism, stop the U.S. death machine at home and abroad. That theme is inspired, of course, by a paper written by Che Guevara, in 1966. It was in that year that Cuba hosted a meeting of what was called the Tri-Continental Conference on Solidarity of the Peoples of Africa and Asia and Latin America. Che was in Africa. He was assisting the armed struggle going on there at that time, but he wrote his paper when he got back to Cuba. And it's important to understand that Che was in a military frame of mind at the time that he wrote the paper. Remember, he had just gotten back from the bush in Africa. The great armed conflict of that era, the Vietnamese War to liberate the southern half of their country from American occupation was raging at that time. And Che noted that it was a sad reality that Vietnam was tragically alone in taking on the brunt of the U.S. superpowers' furious attacks. Although the Soviet Union and China provided material support for the Vietnamese, they were careful not to become directly involved in a war with the crazy American imperialist superpower. So the Vietnamese had to do all of the actual fighting and the actual dying alone. And before it was over, three million Vietnamese were dead. Che pointed out, that the imperial power, the United States, was also gravely wounding itself by spending so much treasure and spending so many of its own lives trying to crush the Vietnamese. He wrote that what he called the fabulous U.S. economy is feeling the strains of war. But that was in 1966. The U.S. had not even fully committed all of its vast military to the Vietnamese battlefront. The Soviet Union and the U.S. were locked in what looked like a permanent nuclear face-off 
in which neither one wanted to provoke the other into doing something crazy, which would result in everybody getting killed. And China, and Che points this out, was militarily encircled by the United States and its allies. On the African continent, Che noted that the U.S. considered Africa to be its own long-range reservoir of resources. And he said that the Americans planned to take the place of the European colonial powers on the continent, and very soon. Che also predicted that the liberation movements in Portugal's African colonies would win their struggle, but Che said that he didn't think that the Portuguese colonies were key to the liberation of Africa. That job, that mission, he said, was up to the people of South Africa and what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He predicted that a new era would dawn in Africa when the black masses of South Africa and then Rhodesia went into revolutionary struggle. And by that he meant not just flag independence, but revolutionary struggle to transform Africa. Che was looking around the world at that time to assess where the prospects were for other nations and other peoples to relieve the pressure that was on Vietnam so that Vietnam wouldn't have to face the wrath of the superpower all by itself. Che concluded that the task of Cuba was to help create a second or a third or many Vietnams in order to further bleed and weaken U.S. imperialism. That is, we help Vietnam by starting more conflicts that engage the U.S. imperialist. The U.S. should be forced to engage in suppressing multiple simultaneous wars of national liberation, two or three Vietnams, so that the contradictions of its own society would become acute and the speed of the process of world revolution would be catapulted upward. Che put his own body where his mouth was. He soon relocated to Bolivia and he died there in armed struggle. That was more than half a century ago. At that time, there were lots of armed struggles going on in Latin America and in Asia and in Africa. Che saw the immediate prospects for weakening or crippling U.S. imperialism. He believed that that lay in greatly intensifying those existing rebellions and starting new ones. And he saw that as Cuba's revolutionary responsibility. Now, it would take far too long to examine all of the victories and all of the defeats that revolutionary forces have experienced around the world over the past 50 years. But there is no question that the U.S. economy, that economy that Che described as so fabulous back in the 60s, ain't fabulous anymore. The revolutionary fervor of Che's era did not, of course, lead to an imperial collapse. Indeed, it was the socialist camp of countries that imploded 20 years later. But the people did win victories. The Vietnamese did win their war. 
Africa was decolonized, at least in terms of direct European rule. And the Cuban Revolution has survived for three generations of US embargoes, and it continues to serve as a model for Latin America and for the world. But most importantly, the contradictions of the global system of capitalism have become acute. This is truly and demonstrably the late stage of capitalism, and there's nothing fabulous about it. In the US and Europe, capitalism is decrepit, afflicted with the full array of fatal contradictions. So when we look at the global landscape and our place in that global landscape here in the belly of the beast, we can say that there today exists not one, not two, not three, but many Vietnams, and those Vietnams can bring this monster down. And they will bring it down because the system is doomed. The only question is whether it will pull all of humanity into the grave with it. U.S. imperialism has dug that grave for itself, with some help from folks like Che. In its eternal search for the greatest profits, the capitalist rulers have shifted the world's manufacturing centers from the United States and Europe to what used to be called the third world. And most dramatically, they have shifted those resources to China. So that although China is still militarily encircled by the United States, as it was in Che Guevara's time, it has become the center of the world economic growth, and it is the biggest nemesis of US imperialism. China's rise, however, does not mean the death of capitalism, not yet. China calls its system socialism with a market, but the state in China controls the commanding heights of the economy. And that economy is kicking the ass of old colonial Europe and the United States because those capitalists de-industrialized themselves. Nobody made them do it. They did it themselves out of greed. And this is what it has gotten them. China has embarked on the greatest public works and transportation infrastructure project in the history of the human race. It's called the One Belt, One Road Initiative. In its true essence, it is a global decolonization project designed to replace and make obsolete the trade and commerce connections that the Europeans and the Americans created in order to monopolize the global economy for themselves and to suck the world dry as they've been doing for 500 years. China's partner in this one belt, one road initiative is Russia and Russia is the world's largest country. But China has many partners in this gargantuan project, which will integrate not only the great Euro-Asian landmass, but also Africa into the global economy, 
an economy in which the United States will find itself at the periphery, at the margins, no longer at the center of the world. Even in Latin America, which the U.S. likes to think of as its own backyard, China is out trading the United States, and Che Guevara would be delighted. It's taken a while, but we, I think, can finally taste the final demise of U.S. imperialism. I think that it is at least on the visible horizon, or we can see the outlines of its death, maybe within the lifetime of even an old man like me. <laughs> we are not, however, when we speak of the death of U.S. imperialism, we're not necessarily speaking of the death of capitalism, because China is second only to the United States in its number of billionaires. However, that is a problem for the Chinese people to resolve, and I'm confident that they will. For now, no less a revolutionary than Fidel Castro has said that China's socialism with the market is a model that all of the developing countries can emulate. So, we have to ask the question, how useful today is Che Guevara's admonition that we create one, two, three Vietnams? Che was speaking of the need to meet and confront U.S. military aggression in the world so that Vietnam wouldn't be alone on the battlefield. Vietnam won. It won at great cost. And for a number of years, the United States was hesitant to commit large numbers of its own troops to foreign wars. They called that the Vietnam Syndrome. But the U.S. imperialists did redouble their efforts to subvert through all kinds of devices, to subvert all efforts to break away from the imperial orbit. When the Soviet Union fell, the United States thought that it had become the new Rome, and it bragged about that. And they thought that they could use now, finally, their foreign legions anywhere and any way that they pleased. So they attacked Iraq in the first Gulf War, and they expanded NATO right up to the borders of Russia. And then... After 9-11, they invaded Iraq again with hundreds of thousands of men this time. George Bush thought that the U.S. empire was on a roll. And after just a few months of combat in Iraq, George Bush declared, mission accomplished. But it turned out that that was a failed mission. And the U.S. was forced to withdraw from Iraq only five years later. That was a great humiliation. It was a great imperial defeat. It was a defeat of the highest order. And it was so humiliating that the empire was forced to put on a whole new set of clothes. The empire went black. It got itself a black president so that the world might see the United States in a new light. And for a while, it did. And the first thing that that black president did was invade Africa. He attacked Libya. George Bush 
before he left office, had already established AFRICOM in Africa. Obama then sent in the U.S. troops, and those troops immediately joined up with the French, who were still in Africa, so that they could have a joint occupation of the continent. Obama overthrew Libya, and he did it by mobilizing thousands of Islamic jihadist fighters whom the U.S. had been cultivating ever since the Russians were in Afghanistan. Remember, the United States had burnt itself. It had humiliated itself. It had discredited itself, and it had also discredited within the American polity the idea of sending tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops off to foreign war. So by the time Obama got in power, the United States empire didn't have the capacity, because it didn't have the political consent, did not have the capacity to send its own troops. So that is why it began mobilizing, arming, training, financing tens of thousands of jihadists. Let's call them by their right name. This is al-Qaeda. This is the United States invading Libya and then Syria with al-Qaeda. And it still protects al-Qaeda. The remnants of it are still in Idlib province in Syria. And you will hear and see the U.S. corporate media bad-mouthing the Syrian government as if they are planning to attack Idlib province with chemical weapons and all those poor Syrians are there scared of the Assad regime, as they call it. Idlib province is controlled by al-Qaeda. That was Bar Executive Editor Glenn Ford. O'Malley Yesha Taylor is chairman of the Black is Back Coalition, which is made up of a diverse group of radical black organizations. Yesha Taylor is also the leader of the African People's Socialist Party, which has long been intimately involved with the African liberation movement. In 1963, we saw the founding in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, of the so-called Organization of African Unity on May 25th. It's celebrated today as African Liberation Day. But what is not recognized by most people is that the OAU, as it was called then, was founded as a means of circumventing Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah's effort to unite all of Africa, destroy the borders that separated Africa uh, as part of a struggle against neocolonialism. And so to preempt the movement, just like they are preempting us on, on reparations and every other question to try to take control of the question so that Africa could not be united, you saw this creation of the Organization of African Unity to preempt Nkrumah, who was saying that the borders have to go, and was trying to organize to make that happen, they created a situation where the Organization of African Unity, and, and I want you to read Google, Nkrumah's presentation on May 24th, 1963, before this entity that became the Organization of African Unity, where he predicted that if Africa is not uni united, everything that we see happening in Africa today was going to happen. He talked about neocolonialism and how we would be used against each other, that we couldn't have a common economy, we couldn't have a common, any kind of military policy or anything like that, and we could be attacked continuously from this place and that place and not be able to respond.
respond effectively and strategically to that. And this is why they put together the Organization of African Unity. And the Organization of African Unity codified codified the colonial borders, in fact, said that we would respect the colonial borders and not do anything to destroy those borders. And when the borders uh, act as restraints, constraints, if you will, on any kind of development of Africa, or any kind of economic development of Africa is being constrained by that. And so now what is happening as a consequence of Africa being able to rely on Africa, you got a group of Africans who rely on the French, you got a group of Africans who rely on the Americans, a group of Africans who rely on the Chinese, a group of Amer Africans who rely on all these other external forces because they have kept us from being able to collect all of our resources on the continent of Africa that belongs to black people. We say that Africa is the richest continent on the planet Earth. 12 million square miles of nothing but value, nothing but riches. And African people are being starved every place around the world. It's ours. And it's the birthright of African people all over the planet Earth is right there on the continent of Africa. That's what we believe. And that we have to have a revolutionary movement that gives us a strategic capacity. Here you have the French in a dispute with the Americans. And this has been a dispute going on. They fought. They had, Glenn Ford mentioned, wars were being fought all over the continent of Africa, proxy wars uh, between French and the Americans for who was going to control what. And we saw presidents and governments overturned as an ongoing part of that process. And so even as they are fighting each other, when we saw the situation in Haiti, Aristide in Haiti, Haiti, a former French colony, Haiti, which has been looted by the United States forever, looted uh, by the French, looted in many ways by imperialism at, at large, where they actually imposed the economic embargo on Haiti some years ago after Haiti became independent. And so the United States uh, goes into Haiti, overthrows the government, throws Aristide on the airplane, and where do they take him? There's a former French colony in Haiti. Where do they take him? They take him to Central Republic of Africa, which is a former, so-called former colony of France. Here you got corporations between even com competing imperialist forces. They will fight each other, and they will have us kill each other around who's going to have what. But when it comes to controlling Africa... They will agree that Africa has to be controlled by white power. They might have disagreements who's going to get what, just like they did in Berlin in 1884 and 85 when they came together, because that was also part of preventing war between imperialist powers. Who was going to get what? It's like the mafia, like gangsters who then sat down on the table and, and gave this to Don, somebody, this to this other mafioso group. And we say that, that Africa, we recognize that the liberation of Africa is going to come as a consequence of revolution. Absolute revolution. Every neo-colonial puppet regime on the continent of Africa got to go. And for that to happen, we have to put revolutionary organization down on the ground in Africa. That's what we do. In 1981, we passed the resolution at the first Congress of the African People's Socialist Party, found a hill some nine years after our founding in Oakland, California, we passed a resolution to build the African Socialist International. 
And since that time, much if not most of our work has been geared toward making this African Socialist International happen, which is why we exist in five provinces, at least five provinces right now, uh, in what they call South Africa, which is why we are engaged in places uh, like Kenya, which is why we've been in and out of Kenya and Ghana and Sierra Leone and all these other places, which is why on a weekly basis, at least once a week, uh, we have Comrade Louisa Kinshasa, who is the Secretary General of the African Socialist International, engaged in intervening in philosophically, ideologically, and politically in so many of the struggles that's happening on the African continent, especially in Congo and in Europe itself, uh, which is why we organize African people in France. And this is really important because Africans in France, unlike here, they're in and out of the continent on a regular basis, right? And this is what we see as our mission to put revolutionary organization down on the ground everywhere. And we have to have an ability, because if we are attacked, as we are constantly attacked all on the continent of Africa, we have to make the imperialists pay a consequence where we have that ability. If they attack us in Congo, we need to be able to attack them in Miami. If they attack us in these places, etc., we have to have that ability to do that. We have to have the ability to bring this system down. And much of this energy and strength of this system is on the continent of Africa, not just the Americans. What you see is every force in the world today that's either trying to rescue itself or to become a part of the imperialist power, they're in Africa. Most of the imperialists are gathered in Africa, and we want them in one damn place. We want them located in one place. We just have to put the revolution there, so we are drawn in. That's what Mao said. Draw the enemy into your territory, surround them, wipe his ass out. Imperialism has to die. There is no way that we can compromise with that reality. And to do that... To do that, we are convinced that we have to have revolutionary organization. And the highest expression of the kind of organization we believe is the Revolutionary Party that is designed to take and will political power, to take the power, to take the damn power. That is what we are convinced has to happen. That's what every revolutionary movement in the world has attempted to do. And it ain't going to be any different for African people. We're going to have to take it. They are not going to give it to us. They lie to us. The reason we are fighting them is because, as somebody said, they're a criminal enterprise. The reason we are fighting them is because they lie, they steal, they loot, they rape, they murder. They have, they have no consciousness at all. And we have to build a steel cadre, an organization of steel cadre that's willing to make revolution our profession. That was Somali Yesha Taylor, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, speaking at a conference of the Black is Back Coalition. President Trump's rhetoric gets raunchier by the day as the 2020 election draws near. Some of Trump's critics seem to think that calling him un-American is an effective argument. But political analyst William C. Anderson doesn't think so. Anderson recently wrote an article for Truthout titled, Using Patriotism to Deflect Racism is a Deadly Mistake. Too many people seek to make Donald Trump into a deviation from the norm with regard to his white supremacy. And this country has always had white supremacist presidents. So maybe the way he expresses his white supremacy in language or presentation is different to some extent. But 
who he is and what he wants is something the Oval Office is quite familiar with. So it misses the point to say things like he's disrespecting the office or lowering the standard of the presidency when this has always been a white supremacist position that inflicted brutality all throughout this country and around the world. Yes, saying Trump is un-American is saying that America is something else entirely from Trump, which is a denial of U.S. history and the current and a defense of American exceptionalism. It really is. It really is to say that the United States is something special and virtuous when that's not true and it's not accurate at all. If the United States is exceptional in any way, it's probably with regard to how much violence it inflicts on the rest of the world that maybe makes it stand out. But it's certainly not having anything to do with being ethical or moral. Like, you know, those are just things that this nation puts out about itself as a form of propaganda to make people think that we should be accepting of the violence that it inflicts on the world and on the people within this country. Recently, Trump did one of his signature outbursts and described folks in Baltimore as infestations. And we saw this CNN anchor, Victor Blackwell, who you wrote about in your recent article, basically breaking down almost in tears on the air and affirming that the people of Baltimore, like him, are folks who pledge allegiance to the flag, and they are real Americans too, as if their patriotism was what made them Americans. Yeah, there's this kind of effort to paint people that are the victims of racism and that are targeted by racism and white supremacy as quote-unquote real Americans or Americans too, and to use the terms of citizenship as a method of protection. But citizenship is actually something that causes us to experience violence. So trying to use it as something to hide behind doesn't really make sense. Black people have never been considered true citizens of the United States of America. And that's why those of us who are descended from enslaved Africans can be told to go back to Africa because We've never actually been considered a, a true part of this nation, despite the contributions Black people have made and despite all of the performances and despite all of the fighting and wars and all of the things that uh, Black people have contributed along the lines of inventions and so on and so forth to this society. The simple fact of the matter is Black people are just not considered true citizens. So to try to use citizenship as something to say, leave us alone. It just doesn't make sense because we're not ever going to be included um, in what this society defines as U.S. citizenship. Yes, and in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Black people could not, were not, and could not be citizens of the United States, and in fact had no rights that a white man was obligated to respect. And Abraham Lincoln didn't think the blacks should be citizens of the United States. He was in favor of colonizing free black people elsewhere until his experience in the Civil War. 
Right. You know, we can go back to Dred Scott and, you know, bring it forth all the way to now. Something that I think about a lot is what it means for people to try to use the terms of citizenship and the conditions of being a citizen or whatever that's supposed to mean to try to defend themselves. It's something that's very prevalent in the immigrant rights movement. So you hear a lot of people fighting for for citizenship and saying that citizenship is the ultimate goal in a way that can be troubling and can be counterproductive because people who are undocumented and people who are non-citizens are experiencing violence that is placed on them by this category even existing in the first place. And so it, it makes us have an interesting question in front of us. Does this category need to exist at all? Because if we're fighting for citizenship, if we're fighting for inclusion in this category, that's going to still mean that there's going to be people that are excluded by it. So I think that the problem is the category of citizenship itself, not necessarily that not enough people are included in it. And that's why many activists fight under the banner of human rights. Exactly, exactly. And even that, even that can be unpacked as well. You know, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, uh, Christina Sharp, has mentioned in her book, In the Wake, she mentioned that it's, it's also, you know, similarly troubling to try to fight for inclusion under the term human because there's a lot of violence that's been packed into that category as well um, to say we are human. You know, you hear a lot of people say that um, in movements. We're humans, too. And the thing about these problems is that white supremacy has put so much violence and so much. There's so many ulterior motives that are packed into these things when when we say them and when we just kind of try to put ourselves into these categories that is defined through violence, you know, it sometimes is just counterproductive. We have to think about things outside of the terms of not just citizenship, but I think even humanity as well. And just like, think about a completely new approach to how we're going to achieve our liberation without necessarily looking for inclusion in the terms that whiteness and white supremacy have defined as human or as citizen. So I think that is, is a very complicated issue. Every time Trump opens his mouth with statements of blatant racism, some people act like they're surprised. But you write that we've known about Trump's blatant racism since before he was elected president. And some of us might say, well, that's in fact why he was elected president. Absolutely. That is why he was elected president. He was elected president because there's been an increasingly hostile movement going back to the Tea Party in response to the election of Barack Obama. There's been an increasingly hostile movement about these white resentments and frustrations with changing demographics and immigration and birth rates and so on and so forth. There's been a lot of hostility building and a lot of resentment and anger that wasn't, you know, something that didn't exist before is it's existed for quite some time, but it has just been getting increasingly, like I said, more hostile. And to say that Donald Trump was something separate from that is really naive. He was a direct result of that. 
And that's why it shouldn't have been a shock that he was elected in the first place, despite how incompetent he is and despite how unequipped to manage a lot of things he is. It's still not surprising that he was elected because he was saying the white supremacist talking points and things that people wanted to hear in the most effective way for him to be chosen. And that's why he was elected president. So to react with any sort of surprise to him now just doesn't make any sense. He's a direct result of what we've been seeing for years. Yes, Donald Trump's presence in the White House is proof that there is a voting majority in the United States that has never accepted Black people and others as full members of society. Right, right. And for those of us who are trying to push back against white supremacy and trying to fight um, a lot of the really nasty Um, ugly things that we're seeing coming out, we have to move past looking to nationalism and patriotism as ways of protecting ourselves because it just doesn't work. We cannot defend ourselves by pledging allegiance and saying the national anthem better. We have to protect ourselves by using our self-determination and establishing a path towards liberation And that has everything to do with getting rid of a lot of these categories and these these nationalistic ideas that people are hoping to be included in. Those things need to be done away with. They don't need us bolstering them more by begging to be a part of them or trying to be included in them. We have to be getting rid of the things that have only caused us pain, have only caused us suffering. Those are the things that are making this problem worse and worse and worse. It's the things that we oftentimes take for granted, like the myth of American exceptionalism or this idea that the United States is an equal democracy. These are things that we have to tackle head on because we're only going to keep experiencing oppression if we feed into them more. You write, the country that we desire doesn't exist yet, and building that society is the work we should be doing. You're talking about a liberation movement, a movement to liberate folks from the America that actually exists. Right. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem. And so we don't need to be begging or appealing or trying to reform everything as much as we need to be rejecting and abolishing. And so for us to sit up and constantly try to entertain these institutions as things that good and wholesome when they've only ever inflicted violence against us, it's just not the way that we should be going. We have to create what we want because what's already been established is only causing us harm. And so it's not something that seems like a good idea for us to spend the rest of our lives saying, oh, you know, we tried, you know, let's try to reform it again. Let's try to reform this again. You know, let's try to reform this again. We should just say this doesn't work. So let's make something new. Let's say that this is unacceptable and get rid of it. Let's abolish it. Let's build something new. And that doesn't mean that everything has to collapse around us and, you know, that there's going to be chaos. It means saying that what exists now 
is not giving us the resources, the protection, the safety, the happiness, and the ability to thrive that we deserve. What exists now is not good enough. We need something new. That's what that means. Instead of saying, let's just keep trying to fix something that's clearly broken and not serving us in a way that is fair to us or that is keeping us, you know, safe from violence. And, you know, with regard to even things being broken, you know, like a lot of people say the justice system is broken. It's actually working the way that it's supposed to work. So a lot of these things aren't necessarily even broken. They're actually supposed to be inflicting violence on us and they're doing that effectively. And so it just depends on what we're talking about. But there are things that we need to accept they're not ever going to serve us and we need to move past trying to make them work for us because they're not intended to. And the capitalist system does not protect us from chaos. That system is, by its very nature, chaotic. Absolutely. But it's only meant to exploit. And I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. It's only meant to exploit. And so trying to benefit and trying to play the game better or become capitalist titans ourselves is like not something that is going to serve us either. It's only meant to exploit and cause harm. We need a system that is not doing that and does not operate by the the logics of white supremacy and violence that we've seen established by this one. That was William C. Anderson, a writer and political analyst who's also social media editor for Black Agenda Report. Hollywood is a lot blacker than it used to be, but that's not saying much. Most Hollywood studios still work on the assumption that movies geared to black audiences don't make much money. Marianne Ariga is a professor of sociology and African-American studies at the University of Georgia. She's got a new book out titled Hollywood Jim Crow, The Racial Politics of the Movie Industry. There does seem to be a lot of research that suggests that movies that have more, I guess you can say more diversity in the casting, so movies with black actors, movies that star Asian or Latino actors, those movies do tend to have a great following, but still in Hollywood, people justify the sense by saying that blackness is not bankable, that black actors will not necessarily target a large audience, although the research is against all of those findings, but still that kind of language is perpetuated. Well, if the research is against that, and in fact, black viewers pack more buck for their viewing power than others, then we must be talking about an inbuilt anti-black bias within the industry itself. I would agree with that. My research with the Hollywood Jim Crow looks at this from examining how this Jim Crow hierarchy that you talked of earlier still exists today, and not only just in society, but also in the film industry. And what I found is that there's this language of anti-blackness or this language of racism that exists in Hollywood. And a lot of these narratives do suggest that black films are unbankable, black films won't make money. They do stigmatize blackness in a way that is very hurtful to black filmmakers, to their craft, and also to their employment and their possibility of being a long-term director. Now, of course, that logic could be used to justify racist practices in any sector of the economy or in society, saying that, well, we do it because it makes us money. 
Yeah, that's really the danger, I think, when you talk about the slippery slope of using these economic logics that are very tied to racism and very tied to anti-blackness, because then we're using this language of profit to justify oppression. So how far is that from saying that we can't hire a black president of a university because we don't think that person would attract donors? So how far is some of that language from other industries and businesses? If it's condoned in Hollywood, then where does it go from there? Yes, and in terms of black-themed and black-actor-packed movies, we just saw the phenomenon called Black Panther. We did, and Black Panther was such a huge phenomenon because there had not been a superhero film, especially with the Marvel Comics series, didn't have, I think it was the 18th movie in that series, and they didn't have any kind of black star in the movies prior to that. And we saw such a global phenomenon, over a billion dollars globally at the box office. And that was one example where we had a black actor and a black director and a black cast that made a lot of money at a global scene. So that really does contradict this logic that Hollywood does perpetuate. But of course, Black Panther was backed by white billionaires. And that seems to say that despite the Hollywood maxim that black films aren't bankable, when two white billionaire forces get together, they can do something black and make billions. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of other examples. Jordan Peele is one that comes to mind whose films are successful on very small budgets. So we do see the the opposite of that, which is black films and black cast films can make money even when they're not backed by these huge studios or these huge productions. So Get Out was one example with the production budget being $4.5 million, and that movie made over $255 million worldwide. And more recently, he released the movie Us, which was made on a $20 million budget and then also made over about $250 million worldwide. So there's a lot of examples and counterexamples, and people can name many others where movies with black stars and black directors do well at the box office, but we don't see a change in this logic. Some folks are saying that black folks have never had it so good in Hollywood as today. But I remember the era of the so-called black exploitation films, when they were turning them out, looked like several a month. And although they called them black exploitation, many of us liked those films, and a lot of black actors got work, and the music was often pretty good too. Yeah, that was a that was such a popular era of film directing for black filmmakers. And I think it was one of those periods where, depending on who you asked, you got a different response. There are people who patronized the movies, obviously, which is why they rose to such popularity. They were some of the first movies to feature black females as these action figures. And that, that led to the trend of other movies today that have these black female action figures and also white female action figures. So it really was the starting point for a lot of that women in action genre. And in addition, they gave a lot of employment to blacks, whether it's behind the scenes and also on camera. And then the music also picked up. You can look at the awards for Oscar nominees and wins, and you can see that that era of black exploitation was an era in which a lot of blacks were recognized for their music capabilities. And then on the other hand, you do have the stereotypes that people lambasted those movies for. And I think at some point maybe they became trite, and that's where we saw an end to that era. But it was an era that economically was very profitable for black filmmakers. You're an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at the University of Georgia, and people are talking of Atlanta as the new mecca for black filmmaking and actors and other mediums of entertainment. 
there's a lot of discussion about Atlanta being a black Hollywood, or at least one location where there are a lot of blacks who are in film and television, even music scene, uniting there in order to make cultural production. And I think Tyler Perry has a really big foothold in that industry with his Tyler Perry Studios, which is expanding. And also he announced this recent partnership with BET to focus on streaming, which is another area where I think online that blacks are able to then make productions that they're not able to make in Hollywood. Now, of course, Tyler Perry doesn't like unions, and BET doesn't either. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's where we're, I guess we're a little bit looking to see where this will go. There's a lot of mergers and acquisitions. There, There's a lot of uncertainty about how the digital era and this digital production will take these big corporations. Everyone's really vying for market share, and everyone's trying to see which would make the most money, whether it's film, digital, television, online. So I think there's a lot of confusion in that area at present. Now I'd like to ask you what you think about the quality of movie making these days from black movie makers and from others. We were talking about the black exploitation films. Well, there was some politics in some of those scripts. Some of it pretty good. Right. There's a lot of discussion about black filmmaking and is the quality of black filmmaking at the level at which audiences would like or audiences deserve. And there's always questions about the resources that blacks have in order to make movies, because as you can see with Hollywood, there's unlimited resources to some extent when you talk about the hundreds of million dollar budgets. And with independent filmmaking, which is more likely where we find most black directors, there's far fewer resources. And so they have to be a lot more creative with limited scope and limited resources. So I think that's one place where if there were more institutions that serves black filmmaking and black cultural production, then we would probably see a rise in those aesthetic qualities where there would be more resources to pull into projects and there's a little bit less resources now because there's less of that unified front. Yeah, that opens up a rather basic question. If there are more platforms, does that mean more money to fill those platforms? Right, that's a very interesting question. One scholar, Amarjean Christian, who's a professor at Northwestern, wrote a book called Open TV, where he talks about that very question, whether these alternative networks of production beyond corporate media, how they can open up new platforms for filmmakers, but also the struggles for the economics and other aspects of that, how to resolve those two competing interests with art and commerce. So I think opening up more voices is useful. If you think about Issa Rae, for example, how she was on YouTube making videos, and then later she became a showrunner and is now acting in bigger pictures. And so it does provide a platform where more people, maybe with the resources, could see this talent, where before it would be hard to find talent outside of the traditional spaces. Even just LA as the primary space for Hollywood, now we can kind of expand that with online and with other hubs like Atlanta to say that people can do cultural production outside of those traditional spaces. And for many of us, the ideal is an unapologetically black platform. But is that viable in today's scenario? I would hope that it is viable because we have unapologetically white platforms. You can say that Hollywood is definitely a white industry. So we do have those platforms. And to say that a platform is unapologetically black doesn't mean that 
it can't hire people who are not black or it can't include people who are not black in the narrative. But I think it's important for blacks to have institutions that are black-owned and black-operated institutions and that those institutions are protected from, you can say, from hate crimes, from things like arson, where we see recently in the news a lot of churches that are black have been burnt down or targeted and even museums. So just it's important to have those institutions and also to make sure that they're protected against any kind of violence. I think it's fair to say that you are an intellectual. You're a professor at a university. What stake do black intellectuals have in this mass appeal film industry? I think black intellectuals could serve as advisors, key advisors. There's some intellectuals who are maybe documentary filmmakers or filmmakers in their own right, but I think more so their role could be as consultants or advisors on certain projects. There's people who work, I know, with um, Henry Louis Gates Project and how they have a lot of historical evidence that they're working with. And so bringing on academics, even to talk about like the sociocultural moments right now, people who are experts on the study of race or the study of blackness could also help make some of these films have a little bit more substance when it comes to issues regarding race or even diaspora. Like Black Panther, one criticism that a lot of people had of the movie was that maybe the context of Africa was not as well embedded as it could have been, or maybe there was a little bit of a disjuncture between what would a modern Africa look like according to African intellectuals. So I think there could be a lot more collaboration across this lens between the people in film production and also the people who are academics. And can a multi-billion dollar behemoth like Hollywood ever be an ally to black people? Has it ever been? I don't think historically Hollywood has been much of an ally to blacks. I think increasingly, though, there have been a lot more acceptance and a lot more projects in which blacks are able to do more of their work, well, less of the, I guess, um, paternalism of Hollywood. Jordan Peele's work might be one example of that, where he's able to do more of his work and get it distributed in a way that we haven't seen in prior years. So I would hope that things are getting more inclusive for black filmmakers, and I hope that it increasingly becomes more inclusive. I think Black Panther would be one example where you have this mainstream picture, but on a lower scale, blacks are looking to have their own personal stories made in Hollywood, just like romantic comedies, thrillers, things outside of the superhero genre and also outside of the comedy and action genre. But trying to find out how we can have these other movies where blacks are featured, sometimes adapted from works like Octavia Butler and science fiction, looking outside of the norm to find works that could be adapted for Hollywood. So I think there's room to grow, but there's also a lot of improvement in the industry today. I would just add that with the Hollywood Jim Crow and the question about Hollywood and is it inclusive for black directors and black filmmakers, I think it's at an important point where we're questioning the form that integration has taken because we're 50 or 60 years past the civil rights era. And that civil rights era really did promote this idea of integration and that we would have this, I guess, this racial harmony where everyone was actively participating. So I guess this is a good point to really ask ourselves how well this integration worked. And some of that comes up with the democratic political debates recently. But how well has integration worked? And Hollywood is one way of examining that. And we can look at it in other spheres in order to see what would make the most sense for an inclusive politics. Yes. Do people really want to see a mirror of society or a society as they would like it to be? Or 
a cleansed society, a sanitized version of where they now live. Yeah, exactly. One one scholar at the University of, I think, South Alabama, or you can just say one scholar who studies film and media studies, Kristen Warner, talks about this colorblindness in television today and colorblindness in film and media. So what vision of society do we see? Is it a sanitized whiteness? Is it a whitewashed vision? Or can we have this unapologetic blackness and that just be part of the American cultural canon? And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>